Father, come before you this morning very thankful for this record from David's life that he wrote so transparently following his confession. This morning we dig into these verses about the misery that he experienced when he kept silent about his sin, Lord. I think this is a sermon that has application for all of us because all of us face the same temptation that David did to be silent after we sin versus confessing. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn from these verses. I ask that you would convict us if there be any sin that any of us are silent about during this time. Lord, bring those to mind. Grant us by your grace the conviction to confess. I pray, Lord, if there be any unbelievers with us, that they haven't even taken that first step of obedience, which is the step unto faith in Christ, Lord. And so I pray you'd help them to see their sin and need for a Savior. You'd grant them salvation through faith. And I pray, Lord, for the believers that you would continue to sanctify us and conform us into the image of your Son. Do you feel a little under the weather this morning, Lord, after being sick this past week? And so I ask that just you wouldn't shortchange your people, that you'd help my mind to be sharp, and that you'd help me to deliver this sermon for your glory and for, and for each person here's growth, Lord. And so just let my uh, mouth and my efforts be used to exalt Christ and to encourage and equip your people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. The title of this morning's sermon is, When I Kept Silent About My Sin. When I kept silent about my sin. So I briefly interrupted our verse-by-verse study through Luke's gospel because I told you that late or maybe the middle of last year I became burdened for some sermons that I wanted to preach. Normally when we begin a new year, I have a couple uh, fresh sermons outside of our verse-by-verse study that God's put on my heart, usually the vision sermons. But this year I really wanted to look at two sermons from Psalm 32, and this will be the, the second one. I want to begin by telling you about one of the most difficult students that I had when I was an elementary school teacher who also happened to become one of my favorite students. His father was in jail. I can still remember reading a letter that he had written to his father. He told his father that he knew jail was very difficult and so he needed to be strong. So just imagine a son writing a letter like that to his dad. I don't think his mother was in the picture. His aunt, who also had her own children to care for and who I don't believe had a husband in the picture, raised him. She had to work full-time to care for herself and to care for her children and then to care for him, and so I do not suspect that she had very much time for him, or really probably for any of her children. Even though he behaved poorly, and by that I mean he's regular, like you'd expect from a poorly behaved student, he was regularly disrupting class, he was frequently in trouble, I would have had him in my class every year if I could have. And so what was it that gave me so much affection for him besides just his difficult background that endeared him to me and made me want to see him succeed? Well, even though he regularly made foolish decisions, He never argued, he never made excuses, he never lied, he never shifted blame. Every time I confronted him that he was, when he was in trouble, he admitted what he did wrong. And I found this to be very refreshing, especially when contrasted with most of the rest of the students I had, because whenever they're confronted, generally the first two words out of students' mouths seem to be the word but, and then the name of the student they want to blame, right? So you're talking to a student about talking when they shouldn't be, and the immediate response is, but Jennifer was talking to me first. Or you talk to that student who hit the other student, and what do they say? But Brian hit me first. 
The humility to accept responsibility, it's incredibly endearing and impressive. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if you're like me, you have probably wondered, since you learned that David was the man after God's own heart, how God could give him that title or speak so highly about him after the terrible sins that he committed, in particular, committing adultery with Bathsheba and then trying to cover or hide his sin by having her husband Uriah murdered. David's actions were so wicked that we would probably doubt the salvation of someone else who committed these same sins. If we didn't have the context of Scripture or know the way that David is written about elsewhere, we would doubt that he was a believer. It was the kind of dark, dark behavior that we would expect to see from one of the more wickeder people in Scripture. So how could God speak so highly about David? I'm convinced that at least part of it has to do with his humility in accepting responsibility for his actions. In the last sermon, we started looking at Psalm 32. Psalm 32, along with Psalm 51, is one of the two psalms of repentance that David wrote after his confession. And in this psalm, David does two very fascinating things. In verses 1 and 2, which we looked at in the last sermon, David writes about the blessedness that came when he confessed. In verses 3 through 5, which we're going to look at this morning, David writes about the misery that he experienced when he kept silent about his sin. So go ahead and look with me at verse 3 so we can pick up where we left off last sermon. Verse 3, David writes, When I kept silent... It means when I kept silent about my sin, when I was still trying to hide it or cover it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. Now, when David said, when I kept silent, who is he criticizing? Yeah, he's criticizing himself. David is criticizing himself. He means when I wouldn't confess my sin, when I pretended to be deaf to the Holy Spirit's conviction or tugging on my heart, when I was stubborn or proud or rebellious. Now, if Cain or, or Absalom or Ahab wrote these words, we wouldn't wonder what they were thinking because we expect men like this to remain silent about their sin. But David wrote these words, the man after God's own heart, so it's easy to wonder how such a godly, such a deeply spiritual man could have been thinking, or let me say it like this, we could wonder what he was thinking during this season that he kept silent. Now, if you were here, let's say, I guess, 13 to 11 years ago, you probably remember that the first two books that I chose to preach through when I came to WCC were first and second Samuel. I think it was about one year in each of those books. I have visited Samuel at different times over the years during sermons, during home fellowships or midweek studies, during Sunday school. I don't think it would be too much to say that second only to Jesus, I have spent more time thinking about and studying David than anyone else in Scripture. And I have wondered, what was David thinking during this season that he kept silent about his sin. I'm convinced that David likely hoped that the conviction was going to go away. If he did not believe that, then why would he not have just confessed, right? 
But conviction is a painful feeling. It is one that does not disappear, at least for believers. Romans 1 describes reprobates. Kind of think of the language in verses, I believe it's 24, 26, and 28 of God, giving people over to their sin. Those are people who don't experience conviction. Ephesians 4.19 describes people who, it says, being past feeling, which is to say being past conviction, have given themselves over to sin. So their conviction has gone away. 1 Timothy 4.2 describes liars whose consciences are seared. So their conviction has also gone away. But in all of these verses, unbelievers are being described. For believers, conviction does not disappear. The struggle gets worse with each passing day. Sometimes, what can actually be a relief? Getting caught. Have you ever been found out after you had been hiding a sin? We've probably heard all those different stories about criminals who find it, uh, leave clues. I believe I was talking to, to Justin, uh, who, Justin Rose, who was a police officer, and he told me that this happens to be the case with cr- criminals. Even in the unbelieving world, people can be so overwhelmed with shame and guilt that they would leave clues or long for that day when they could be caught. We could want sin brought to light so that we're forced to deal with it, so that it's brought to an end in our lives because we don't feel capable of bringing it to an end ourselves. We don't want to have to hide any longer. We, we recognize just how difficult or even excruciating, exhausting it can be to be living this double life, and we want that to end. Second Samuel 11 records David's murder and his adultery, and then Second Samuel 12 records Nathan confronting David. Now, in those chapters, we don't get any insight into how excruciating this season of hiding sin was for David. In other words, when you read the narrative in 2 Samuel, you don't really get a window into just how miserable or agonizing it was for David to be silent for more than likely uh, up to a year. One of the marks of the integrity of Scripture is it records the lowest points of some of its greatest people. There are no punches pulled. David experienced many painful seasons in his life. Just a few of them, I think about when he had to spend over 10 years on the run from Saul for his life. He's living in caves. He has to abandon his family and his friends. He's married at this point. Saul had given his daughter Michael to David, and when David left, Saul took his Saul took Saul's daughter Michael, David's wife, from David and then gave her to another man. I think about when David's son Absalom took the throne from him, making it even worse. Much of the nation that David had loved, uh, served, sacrificed for, for years, ended up joining Absalom in this rebellion. Talk about betrayal, including even the elders of the land and his close friend Ahithophel. I think about the end of David's life. If you're, God told David the sword would not depart from his house, and right up until his last breath, he experienced betrayal and heartbreak from his home. His son Adonijah rebels against him, takes the throne from him. Some of the men, making it even worse, who had been loyal to David for decades, such as his nephew and incredibly talented but violent General Joab joined Adonijah, his, the great faithful, who at least previously faithful high priest, Abiathar, joined Adonijah. Now, we don't know which of these seasons was the worst for David because he doesn't rank them for us <laughs> from least to most excruciating. 
we do get some insight into the agony of these different seasons through the Psalms when David writes about them. But this is what I was reflecting on this week. I think we would all be very hard-pressed to find another season in David's life that seemed to be as agonizing for him as the season he described in these verses when he kept silent about his sin. Now, to me, that is an incredibly, I would almost say shocking, at least sobering, but perhaps even shocking realization that David's sin while hiding it was as painful or perhaps even more painful than those other seasons that I described. And this brings us to lesson one. Sin is a heavy burden. You might remember Pastor Nathan's sermon last week. He talked about this, describing sin as a reproach, something that can be rolled away. Pastor Nathan talked about it being this burden that God would remove for us. John, but until then, it's a heavy burden. John Don said, and listen to this, please. I was going over the sermon with Katie, and she's like, make sure you read this quote slowly because it's so good. So here it is. Sin is a serpent, and whoever covers it only keeps it warm so it may sting even more fiercely and disperse the venom more effectively. I think John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, understood what a heavy burden sin is because in his famous Christian allegory, and by the way, what's an allegory? An allegory is a literary device where the names for persons, places, or things illustrate what those persons, places, or things are. So, for example, the protagonist or the main character of Pilgrim's Progress is named what? Christian, because he captures or is a picture type of every Christian on our journey, and that we're pilgrims on this side of heaven as we're making progress or heading toward heaven or the celestial city. He meets evangelist. Evangelist is the one who sets Christian on his journey by preaching the gospel to him. He meets pliable. Pliable is this individual who's very insecure. He travels only briefly before giving up. He encounters obstinate. Obstinate is stubborn. He thinks that the journey that Christian is on is foolish. Now, one of the strongest and most recurring images in the allegory is the burden, that's what it's called, that Christian carries, and that burden, and if you ever see pictures or illustrations of Pilgrim's Progress or Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, how does he typically look? You know, he's hunched over because he's got this huge burden on his back that he can't be unburdened of, and that burden represents sin. Christian says, that which I seek for is to be rid of this heavy burden, but to get it off myself I cannot, nor is there a man in our country that can take it off my shoulders. Therefore, I am going this way as I told you that I may be rid of my burden. We sing about sin being a heavy burden. Consider the lyrics of this well-known song. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. The author of that hymn, Joseph Scriven, he praises Jesus for bearing our sins for us because they're such a burden. He says, are we weak and heavy laden? He's describing us as being 
exhausted, exasperated, almost crushed under the weight of our sin, the burden of it? Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, more language of a heavy burden? We tend to think of certain sins having physical consequences, such that maybe we've probably all of us at different times have seen that addict, right? You don't even have to ask them if what drug they have used over the years, their faces tell you because they look about 20, 30, or perhaps 40 years older than they actually are that their addiction has caused a terrible toll on them. Alcohol, we think about the physical consequences from that. We can think about anger, sinful anger, at least. There's also righteous anger, but the sinful anger and the physical consequences from that. Higher blood pressure, the wear and tear on our hearts, the greater propensity toward, toward heart attacks. But interestingly, David describes the physical consequences from his sin, and his sin is adultery and murder. And we probably don't typically think of sins like adultery and murder, having physical consequences when they're left unconfessed. To be clear, David isn't talking about physical consequences like the disease he acquired from the sin. He's talking about the physical consequences from the sin of keeping silent. He's talking about the toll that was taken on him when he would not confess his sin. And this brings us to lesson two, part one. If we keep silent about sin, it can, part one, physically affect us. If we keep silent about sin, it can, part one, physically affect us. Look at each phrase with me in Psalm 32, 2. David says, my bones wasted away. We use this kind of language, don't we? We talk about being so cold we can feel it down to our bones. So when David says, my bones wasted away, he means he could feel very deeply the physical toll being taken on him. He says, through my groaning all day long. It means David's pain never went away from the moment he got up to the moment he went to bed. And then he say, well, maybe it was better for him at night. Maybe it was better when he went to sleep. But then he says, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. David could not sleep. Nighttime didn't fare any better for him than daytime. He says, my strength, or some Bibles I believe might say vitality or, or life. My strength, my life, my vitality was dried up as by the heat of summer, which means David knew that this was aging him to remain quiet. He could, he could feel his vitality leaving his body. He knew that his silence was slowly killing him. Listen to this, 1 Kings 1.1, toward the very end of David's life. King David was old, he's advanced in years. Although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. And we know this, you get older, your circulation's not as good. David sounds like a very sick, decrepit old man. His body is failing him at this point. And I don't mean that necessarily as a criticism of him. This would be expected of, of David because it's expected of anyone as they get older. This would be expected if David were as old as the godly men in the Old Testament when they died. And so let me ask you, what age did godly men in the Old Testament typically die? 
Well, I'll give you some examples. Abraham died when he was 175 years old. Isaac died when he was 180. Jacob died when he was 140. Moses died at 120, although he could have kept living longer, right? His eyes still had good sight, much vitality left, but God ended his life because his mission was finished. Joshua died at 110. Anyone know how old David is when he's described here at the end of his life in 1 Kings 1.1? He's 70. He's 70 years old. David was probably about 50 when he committed his sins of adultery and murder. Up to that point, how did David look physically? He's really one of the most vibrant, one of the most vigorous men in Scripture. After his sin, what happened to his health physically? Do you remember when he went out to battle? His mind, have you ever had this happen where you, your mind is still sharp but your body's not keeping up? <laughs> None of the young people better raise their hands when I ask that. And you're kind of thinking, well, I can do what I used to do. So David goes out to battle like he used to go out to battle, and he thought that his body was going to keep up with his mind, and he almost got killed by one of Goliath's family members. And so his men said, David, you're, you're too old. The light's going to go out from Israel. If you're executed, you may not go out to battle anymore. His body started deteriorating very quickly following his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah. So here's my point. Part of it is spiritual. Part of it is mental. Part of it is emotional. What I mean by that is when we sin, or even when we remain silent about our sin, there is a spiritual toll. That's probably where our minds first go. Say, well, what's wrong with remaining silent about our sin and not confessing? Well, there's a spiritual toll. There's also an emotional toll, which I'll talk about in a moment. And there can be an emotional, mental, spiritual toll, but we need to recognize there is a physical toll as well. Generally, there is a quality of life that is afforded when we obey God. And I say generally, it's kind of like Proverbs. It's not guarantees, it's not absolutes, but generally there is a quality of life that is afforded when we obey God. And I say generally because there are plenty of obedient, godly people who have health issues or struggle physically. Conversely, there is generally a wear and tear that we experience when we disobey God. And that physical wear and tear on our body is made even worse when we keep silent or when we refuse to confess. I'll show you two more examples. Look, one chapter to the left at Psalm 3110. Psalm 3110. This is David again. He says, my life is spent with sorrow. He has no joy. He says, my years with sighing. He's filled with grief. My strength or my vitality fails because of my iniquity. Again, he sees his life leaving him, seeping away. And my bones waste away. Again, more physical suffering. Turn to the right to Psalm 38 too. I'm usually pretty careful about how much I have you turn because I don't like to spend a lot of the sermon waiting for you to find the right places, but because we're only turning a few chapters here in Psalms. And I, I just can't, convince myself to put verses up on the screen. I've watched, I watch a lot of sermons, right? And I see a lot of guys that are putting, preachers that are putting verses up on the screen. I just can't see myself ever going in that direction. Maybe it would save time, but I just find considerable value in having you have your Bible on your lap, turn the pages, find places, familiarize yourself with the books. I like my children to do that as well. So, and it's not a commentary on whether other preachers here 
could use the screen for verses, but I, I don't see myself doing that. And so as long as I'm not doing that, I'll try to limit the turning or flipping to places we can reach quickly. And in Psalm 38 too, David says, your arrows, he's talking to God, your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. Another vivid description of the physical toll taken on David because of sin. I was going over the sermon with Katie, and she says, you going to go further in that psalm? And I said, well, I don't really have time because the sermon's already so long. But you can read further in this psalm and see the continued description of the physical toll that was being taken on David because of refusal to confess. And I want you to notice something else in these verses. David says, your arrows have sunk into me. He says, your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. Who is your? Who's your? Who's he talking to? He's talking to God. David was suffering, and he knew that his suffering was coming from God. There's no curiosity on his part. He doesn't wonder. You can't find a psalm where David says, why am I feeling this way? Why are things so bad for me? Why am I so unfortunate? This brings us to the next part of lesson two. If we keep silent about sin, it can part two bring God's discipline. It can bring God's discipline. Spurgeon said, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. Let me say that one more time. God does not permit his children to sin successfully. And right when you start to think, oh, maybe I'm going to be able to get away with this, God shows us that he does not let us sin successfully. And in fact, I'd even say, if you do feel like you're able to get away with sin, there are two possibilities, and this is very important. One possibility is God is just being merciful, giving you time to repent. The other possibility is you're not God's child. That's right. More on that in a moment. Turn to Psalm 32.4 to reread it. Psalm 32.4, one more time. David says, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David knew that God was disciplining him. He knew where this agony or suffering was coming from, from God. He said the same thing elsewhere. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 39.10, remove your stroke from me. I I think of that almost like a parent swatting or stroking or spanking a child. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. David knew that it was not just conscience or shame. It's really unfortunate to me that the unbelieving world attributes so much to conscience or shame or guilt without seeing God in it. David knew that his suffering was not just caused by conscience or shame, although I'm sure that was part of it. He knew that God was behind it, that God was pressing down on him, and he pleaded with God to stop. He says, remove this from me. I can't handle this anymore. 
I've said before that we tend to wrongly associate forgiveness with the absence of consequences. So in other words, we sin, we confess, we know that we're forgiven through Christ, and so we assume wrongly that there will not be any consequences. But the reality is we can sin, be forgiven, and have terrible consequences. David's a good example. He was forgiven, and then right after that, Nathan said, the sword will not depart from your house. But if we sin and then refuse to confess, or which is to say we remain silent, we are almost guaranteed to suffer because God will discipline us until we do. So let me say that one more time. You can sin, you can confess, God can be merciful, and maybe there won't be consequences. Maybe there won't be, there won't, the consequences won't be as bad as they would have been if we didn't confess. But I guarantee this much. If we sin and we don't confess, we will suffer God's discipline. We almost use the words discipline and punishment synonymously, synonymously, and I try, I think I told you in a recent sermon, I try to be precise, especially when I'm handling God's word. Discipline and punishment are not the same, we, and we should not confuse them, and we will confuse them. We might say, well, God's disciplining me for my sin. That can be correct. And then we'll say, God's punishing me for my sin. The only way God's punishing you for your sin is if you're not a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, what happened to the punishment for your sin? It was poured out on Christ, right? If you're in Christ, you've never been punished for a sin. You can't be punished for a sin. That's antithetical to the gospel. Christ took the punishment that your sins deserve. But you can be what? You can be disciplined. So don't ever say this. Don't say God's punishing me for my sin, unless you're not a believer. And don't tell believers God's punishing you for your sin. You can say God's disciplining you for your sin. Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. So it's important to understand when we're suffering because of our sin, don't think of God as a judge and we're criminals being punished for our crimes. That's not what's happening. When we sin, God isn't the judge unleashing the penalty on us because of our crime. Instead of thinking judge, we should think father. Instead of thinking of criminals, we should think of sons. It is a loving father who is dealing with his children to get us to repent. Now, God dealt with David. He suffered terribly, not punishment, but discipline, until he finally, wonderfully broke. Look at verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Notice the phrase, iniquity of my sin. Does that sound a little odd? Because normally we say iniquity or we say sin. We don't say the iniquity of our sin, typically. But David said this because he wanted to focus on the wickedness of what he did. It's almost like saying the heinousness of my evil or the wickedness of the transgression. Make sure you notice something else important. 
It was the misery of verses 3 and 4 that produced the confession of verse 5. Let me say that one more time. We should notice that it was the misery or agony David experienced in verses 3 and 4 that helped produce the confession in verse 5. So now David has humbled himself, he's confessed, he stopped remaining silent, he, he's finally unburdened of his burden, the debt is canceled, the twisted in David's life has now been made straight. What might have been the longest year of David's life is finally over. I suspect all of the shame, the conviction is gone, there's no more hiding. Who's David no longer lying to? A lot of answers to this. No longer lying to himself. No longer lying to the people. Most importantly, no longer lying to God. And notice two things about his confession. First, the confession is tied to verse 1. There's a parallelism between verses 1 and 5. Here's what I mean. In verse 1, David mentions sin, iniquity, and transgression. And did you notice in verse 5, he mentions all three of those again? He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions. Why did he mention all three of those in verse 1 and then again in verse 5? I suspect it's because David is showing the thoroughness of his confession. He knew everything that he had done. He knew all of the sin, iniquity, transgression. And so he makes the point in verse 5, I have confessed everything. All of the sin, iniquity, transgression has been confessed. And second, there's an emphasis on who David confessed to. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Well, how many people, you can't even answer this, it's almost innumerable, but how many people did David sin against? I mean, he sinned, sinned against everyone who loved Uriah. He sinned against everyone who was friends with Bathsheba, more than likely Ahithophel, his great counselor, who turned against him did so because Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather and he couldn't handle David's hypocrisy. I'm not legitimizing Ahithophel's betrayal, but I'm just making the point that numerous people were sinned against by David. His family suffered because of his sin, which is frequently the case when fathers sin. The family of the father suffers. The nation suffered. But when David confessed, he can, and I'm not saying we wouldn't ever confess to others, but David made the point that he confessed to God because ultimately he knew his sin was against God. In the other psalm of repentance, Psalm 51.5, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, interestingly, we've talked much about the physical toll that was taken on David because of his sin. He interestingly expected a physical recovery following his confession. I want to handle this well because it definitely is not a guarantee in our lives, but just listen to this. In the other Psalm of Repentance, Psalm 51.8, David said, Let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So David knew that there was this toll, physically speaking, being taken on him when he was silent, and he expected to heal physically when he confessed. Now, I'm not saying 
that this is always going to be the case, that there's going to be a physical improvement following confession, but it does seem to work that if there is a physical toll that is being taken when we remain silent, that to confess means that that physical toll could be lifted. There could be an improvement. And this brings us to lesson three. A confession can, part one, bring relief. Lesson three, a confession can, part one, bring relief. As much as silence can bring God's discipline, a confession can bring relief. So I would say it like this. Just as much as the misery of verses 3 and 4 helped produce the confession of verse 5, we could also say that the confession of verse 5 brought to an end the misery of verses 3 and 4. And so this is what I would say. When, when we're in verses 3 and 4, when we're remaining silent, how do we feel? What do we feel? Well, we, I think we feel miserable. We might feel uh, agony, like David did. We feel the burden of sin. We feel it weighing down on us. We feel the shame, the conviction. We can feel the toll being taken spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and Physically, we can feel the separation from God. We don't want to pray because we expect greater conviction. Don't want to read the Word because we expect greater conviction. Don't want to be in fellowship because we expect greater conviction. We might even have the same questions that David had. And I don't think that it's paranoid. Do the people around me know what I've done? How long can I keep hiding this sin? When you're remaining silent, you could be in a conversation with someone, and that person can be talking, and you can be looking at them, and you can't even understand what they're saying because you're too busy talking to yourself, saying, do they know what I did? Do they have any idea? And they might not have any idea, but you're twisting their words, thinking they're describing me. They know what happened, and they're trying to address it with me. When will my husband or my wife or my parents or my children or my friends or my church or my home group find out about what I did? God knows about this. He knows what I'm doing. When is he going to discipline me? Is he disciplining me? This bad thing happened in my life. Would that have happened if I had confessed? Isn't that a terrible thing to have to wonder? When you're remaining silent, something bad happens, then you're forced to wonder, is this just a trial the ordinary suffering on this side of heaven, John 16, 33, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. Is this just the tribulation that comes from being in this world, or is this God's discipline? Am I suffering because of my sin? There's really only one way to avoid having to deal with that horribly nagging question, and that is to confess. Confession brings great relief. These questions they weigh on us. That is part of the reason that sin is associated with a burden, or that is part of the reason that sin is such a heavy burden, because of all these nagging questions. So do me a favor. In your Bibles, <laughs> I want you to look at that small space that exists between verses 4 and 5. I do not have the words to describe the importance of that space. That space represents the choice that we must make whenever we sin. Are we going to remain in the misery of verses 3 and 4, continue to experience the agony of verses 3 and 4, 
or are we going to transition through confession to the relief the unburdening of verse 5 listen to this wonderful verse proverbs 28:13 whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy when we conceal our transgressions we ensure that we're not going to prosper we are i mean just one more time listen to this consider how sobering this is whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy so we are setting ourselves up what's the opposite of prospering i would think failure we are setting ourselves up for failure when we remain silent about our sin and consider how well this verse proverbs 28:13 captures the verses we've been studying in psalm 32. first whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper that's what david experienced in verses three and four not prospering his bones wasting away groaning all day long day and night god's hand heavy on him his strength drying up then he says he who confesses and forsakes them that's what david did in verse five acknowledging his sin to god not covering iniquity confessing transgression to the lord and then he says will obtain mercy well that's the blessedness that david described in verses one and two the blessing of having transgression forgiven having god cover the sin god not counting the iniquity against us not having to live in deceit i once quoted this verse to someone i still remember it pretty vividly in the conference room i read proverbs 28 13 to this person and i said if you keep concealing your sin it was a sin that kept coming up in this person's life i told him that i did not think he would prosper and i didn't tell him that i didn't think he would prosper because i'm a prophet because god lets me see the future i said that i did not think he would prosper because i believe god's word that's what god's word says i also told him that if he confessed he would obtain mercy and i did not mean just mercy from god although that's true i meant even mercy from the people who had caught him in his sin i thought those people or we would be merciful as far as i know he never confessed and i believe has failed to prosper now we've spoken so much about david's confession don't you want to know what that confession sounded like <laughs> we talked a lot about david remaining silent don't you want to know what it sounded like when he wasn't silent second samuel 12 13 nathan the prophet confronted david and then we read i have sinned against the lord that's surprisingly brief isn't it there's a pretty short confession considering all that david had done and now maybe you say well maybe david said a lot more than that and it's not recorded in scripture that could be but i can tell you this is all god wanted us to know of david's confession so we could argue that david said more but i can argue that god didn't care for us to know any more that david said because this is all that's recorded for us and this brings us to lesson four a confession can part two be short a confession can part two be short keel and delich said the words are very few but that is a good sign of a thoroughly broken spirit 
There's no excuse, no hiding, no concealment of the sin. There's no searching for a loophole, no pretext put forward, no human weakness pleaded. He acknowledged his guilt openly, candidly, and without any denial of truth. Frequently, words can reflect excuses, or there are many words because of the blame shifting or justifying. Last week at the men's retreat, one of the things I taught on was Saul, and it's an interesting contrast the way David responded when he was confronted with the way Saul responded when he was confronted. Do you remember the times? 1 Samuel 13, when he offered the sacrifice he wasn't supposed to offer. 1 Samuel 15, when he didn't exterminate all the Amalekites. Both times, Nathan the prophet comes to confront Saul. And how does Saul respond? Let's just say this, lots of words. <laughs> Very long explanations and excuses. Well, you didn't come at the proper time. And then all of the people... And then I had to do this. And then, well, I did keep some of the animals, but I kept them to sacrifice them. And then the people kept the best of the plunder. And it's just on and on and on. So there can be something very refreshing about a short confession like this. The confession's actually only two words in Hebrew, and one of the words is the word for God, which means the confession itself was only one word. Now, because the confession is short, we can learn much from what David did not say. In fact, I would say we can learn more from what David did not say than from what he did say. So let's consider what David didn't say. First, he didn't say anything rationalizing his sin. Well, you know, I didn't mean to see Bathsheba. When I went up on the rooftop, I was going for a walk. I didn't know that she was going to be there. Come on, God, how many kings in the Old Testament had multiple wives? It's pretty common. It's pretty normal. I'm just doing what everyone else is doing. I had to send men. Don't you want victory over the Ammonites? I had to send men out to battle to defeat the Ammonites. I mean, I know Uriah got killed, but how many other soldiers got killed in battle? I needed him there to fight that battle. Second, there's no blame shifting. There's only one pronoun that David used, and it's the word I. There's no we, they, you, them, us, he, she. You could be quick to say, well, you know, it's not really a big deal that David didn't shift blame because there was nobody else to blame. Well, that's completely untrue. We have proud, rebellious hearts that are always seeking other people to blame. And there were lots of other people that David could have tried to blame. Could have blamed Bathsheba. You know, what was she doing out in the open like that? He could have blamed Adam. You know, I'm a, I'm a weak man. I've got this flesh. It's not even my fault that I have it. I've got it from my father, Adam. He's the one that ate from the tree, and I have this sinful nature as a result. It's really his fault. I wouldn't even be tempted if it wasn't for him. He could have blamed God for the way that God made him. There was an older man. I put this in here because there was an older man who told me this once after I talked to him about sexual sin he engaged in. And this is a man who would call himself a Christian. And he said, well, God made me this way with these desires. I mean, if God didn't want me doing this, then why would he give me such strong, intense desires? If, if God wanted me to be able to resist this, it would be easier than it is. This is probably why we read James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James knew we would be tempted to blame God who created us, so he told us not to do that when tempted. One of the most common things we blame is our upbringing. Well, 
If only my family had taken better care of me. You don't know how my dad used to yell at me. You don't know how absent my mother was. If my parents hadn't gotten divorced, if my siblings had been nicer to me. David could have said something like this. Does it seem like David had a very good upbringing? I don't think so. Do you remember what happened when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel? What did they do with David? I'll tell you what they didn't do with David. They didn't invite him. They didn't even think enough of David to bring him to the anointing of the next king of Israel. They just left him out in the field watching the sheep. Sometime later, Goliath comes, taunting the nation of Israel. David is given supplies to bring to his brothers who are at the front lines. He goes down to bring the supplies as well as to see what's happening. And then listen to this, 1 Samuel 17, 28. Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard David. Eliab was angry. His, his anger was kindled against David. He said, why have you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down here to see the battle. Eliab seems like probably one of the worst brothers in history. Instead of rejoicing over seeing his younger brother or thanking his younger brother for coming to bring these supplies, he's belittling, he's accusing. Being a shepherd is already a pretty humble occupation. The only way to make someone feel worse about it is to tell them that they're a shepherd of what? Just a few sheep, which is what Eliab pointed out. Where did you leave, not your flock? Where did you leave just those few sheep that we can trust you with? It's pretty obvious that David was used to being in trouble because this is his response. What have I done now? Who says, what have I done now? Someone that's used to being in trouble, right? My point is, I think growing up for David was tough, or it was at least tough around Eliab. David didn't use that as an excuse. Finally, David could have blamed Saul for trying to murder him for years. This is one of the most common excuses we make, circumstances, bad things that have happened to us. I mean, this is the world of psychology, that you do bad things because bad things happen to you. And it's like every time we read something else on the news about someone doing something horrible, when that young man goes to the school and shoots up all the other students, the first thing people want to do is find the person who picked on him. Now, I'm not saying bullying is acceptable, or I'm not saying it's not sinful, but I'm just saying that's the temptation to think, well, he did this, he must have been severely picked on at school. The man who gets drunk at home, well, it's his boss's fault. If his boss wasn't stressing him out so much at work or gave him the promotion that he deserved, He wouldn't have to come home and drink like he does. What about the mom who's screaming? Well, if my kids behaved better, I wouldn't have... I mean, everyone's a great mom until they have kids, right? And that mom will quickly point out, I wouldn't be yelling like this if it wasn't for my children. But David didn't shift blame. Instead, it's this pure, sincere confession. And one more important thing we can learn from David's confession, I don't know if you ever thought about this before, his confession is an incredible example of the potential for sincere confessions to bring habitual sins to an end. And here's what I mean by that. David was not a perfect man after this. 
But if you read the chapters, actually, let me get a little more momentum into this. If you're like me, when you're reading through 2 Samuel, at least for the first time, and then you reach chapter 11 when David commits adultery and murder, what do you think? You're like, what? where did this come from? I mean, where's David? The truth is there were signs of it. Because what had David been doing in the previous chapters? It's, a, it's like everywhere he goes, he's snatching up another wife. He's just adding wives left and right. Well, inevitably, when that's become your habit, you're going to see a woman who happens to be someone else's wife, and you're just used to taking women, so you're going to take her too. So there were cracks that we could see. After 2 Samuel 12, after David's confession, David was far from a perfect man. There's at least the other major blemish when he numbers the people. But do you see any further struggles with women? No. My point is a sincere confession also has the potential to bring a habitual sin to an end. Or let me say it like this. A genuine confession has the potential to bring even a life-dominating sin, which I believe David had, that was his weakness, women, to an end, at least when that confession is made genuinely, sincerely, brokenheartedly. Let me conclude this sermon by telling you how Nathan responded to David's confession. 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. What did David have to do to hear Nathan say, the Lord has put away your sin? Or let me say it like this, how many sacrifices did David offer? How much penance did David do? How much fruit had to be produced in his life? Or how many works did David have to perform to be forgiven for his sin? There's nothing. There was nothing more than brokenness. There was nothing more than a sincere confession. So we exchange our burden for Jesus's perfection. It's the beauty of double imputation. Our sin given to Christ and Christ's perfection or righteousness given to us. The sin taken off of our backs and put on Christ's broken, ripped open, bloodied back, and his perfection and righteousness given to us. Christian was carrying that heavy burden that symbolized his sin, and that burden is what set him on that journey in the first place. It was not until he reached the place of deliverance, part of the allegory, deliverance is capitalized, or the cross, that he could get rid of the burden. John Bunyan wrote, Christian ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back, and it began to tumble and so continued to do so until I could see it no more. The only way in which Christian could get rid of his burden was through the cross of Christ. Similarly, the only way that we can get rid of our burden is by looking to the cross of Christ. 
Normally, I offer to meet with you after service because I've been sick this past week. I'm trying to um, avoid people, but I really wanted to come in to preach to you this morning. And so if you do have any questions or would like someone to pray with, I know the other elders would love the opportunity to speak with you. Father, I thank you for how transparently you record even the lowest points of some of the greatest men in Scripture, whether it's Noah, whether it's Abraham, or in this case, David. I thank you for their lives, their humility, and their confession. I thank you for their, even the sins that they committed and that they could be recorded in such a way that we can be encouraged by them, Lord. And so help us not to live in verses 3 and 4. Maybe this would be a psalm that your people would take with them, Lord. I know it's been one that has been dear to me over the years. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't remain in the silence of verses 3 and 4 suffering, but that we would move to the relief the unburdening of verse 5 that comes with confession, Lord. I thank you for this privilege of being able to bring our sins to you and be relieved of them. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.